So how's the sound this evening? Does it need to be, needs to go up? Okay. So how does this, how does this sound? Is that good? Okay. All right. Great. So I want to, um, before starting the talk tonight, I just want to make an announcement or two about um, our interview process. So most of you had interviews today. Those of you who weren't part of group interviews today will be part of group interviews tomorrow, and those interview lists should be posted uh, this evening. So take a look for those after, this, after the talk. There also will be sign-up sheets. Um, we're giving some individual interviews just to people who request them tomorrow. And then our plan at this point is that during the rest of the retreat, each of you will also be scheduled for an individual interview. Um, and then it turns out that um, partly because this is the first uh, time that Spirit Rock has offered continuing education units for a retreat, that there are some wrinkles to work out. And one of the wrinkles that we need to work out is that in our CE plan before the retreat started, before we had a chance to sort of figure out how we're going to deal with the interview process, et cetera, in a live situation, we made arrangements that all the people that are here for CEs would get two group interviews. So how we're going to um, handle that, because we won't be doing group interviews for everyone after tomorrow's interviews. Everyone won't have a second group interview. The people who are here for CEs, and I think it's nine of you, will be scheduling a second group interview for all of you. You'll all still get individual interviews as well, but we'll be scheduling a second group interview for those of you who are here for CEs either on Friday or Saturday. We're not sure yet. So if you're one of the people that are here for CEs, just stay tuned and notice what's on the bulletin board and you'll see when it's coming. Also just want to mention before I start talking tonight that probably, I'm not sure, but just in talking with Richard and Leslie over the last few days, I'm guessing that I might actually be the one who presents the most traditionally Buddhist Dharma material in this retreat. So I just want to say that up front and to recognize that there are a number of you who are here who are connected with other spiritual traditions, and I really honor that, and I just want to be to be really sure that you feel invited to interpret anything that I say into the language and idiom of your own tradition, or that if you don't find in your own tradition something that we talk about and it doesn't fit for you, please feel free to just let it go. And I'm hoping that there'll be enough that where there will be a relationship to what you're familiar with in your own tradition or what you're familiar with in your own practice that um, it won't be a problem. So here we are on the night of the second day of this retreat. And um, back in the mid-70s, I worked at a place called the Insight Meditation Society. And we held retreats like this. It was a meditation center, kind of like Spirit Rock. It was a kind of a precursor to Spirit Rock. And my recollection is that during those retreats, the second night was often the most difficult, especially for new practitioners. And many of you are on your first retreat. And I think in large part that was because um, this repetitiveness of returning over and over again to the breath, 
returning over and over again to the sensations of the feet as you're walking. It really starts to wear on the mind, um, a mind that's used to many more distractions and a lot more variety. So here we are, and it doesn't seem to the three of us that that's happening to you guys. So I'm not quite sure why that is. Richard and Leslie say they don't necessarily think that that's what they experienced when they were on retreat, but it was what I experienced when I was in my early days of doing retreat. Maybe it has to do with back in the days when I was at IMS, almost everybody that came on retreat was in their 20s. And now this is a pretty typical age spread for our retreats. So it's a more mature group largely than, um, than I experienced back at IMS. So that may have something to do with it. It may have something to do with the fact that your teachers and therapists may have something to do with the fact that many of you have already done some mindfulness practice before coming, and oftentimes back then people were just learning mindfulness on their first retreat. I don't really know. But what I do know is that regardless of how you happen to be feeling tonight, that this experience of retreat practice, especially early in a retreat, can be something of a roller coaster experience, an ongoing procession of hills and valleys. In one sitting, the mind can feel kind of as bright as the sun, the midday sun on a warm, cloudless day. And a couple hours later, it can feel as clear as mud. And what I remember back at IMS is this night was one of the muddiest nights. So if you happen to be feeling kind of muddy tonight, just rest assured that you're not the first person that's felt the second night of the retreat to be really challenging. So tonight I'd like to talk somewhat briefly about um, three somewhat different but related topics. And I hope that um, the topics that I've chosen will help you to navigate whatever challenges you might personally be facing um, in your practice to this point. And the first of three is just this very topic of repetition. One of my all-time favorite Dharma books is a book called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind by Suzuki Roshi. Suzuki Roshi was the abbot and the teacher of the San Francisco Zen Center and also of Tassajara Zen Mountain Center near, Santa, uh, near Big Sur in Santa Cruz from 1959 when he first arrived in the U.S. until he died of cancer at the age of 62, 12 short years later. And during those 12 short years, he was one of the most revered and influential Asian Buddhist teachers in this country. And it's in Mind, Beginner's Mind, he has written a chapter titled Repetition. And in that chapter, he writes, if you lose the spirit of repetition, your practice will become quite difficult. So I'm guessing that some of you might have had some sense of what he means this evening, that you might have experienced some time where this repetition got difficult and you lost this willingness, this ease of just doing it over and over again for a while. So I'm hoping that I can help you to discover or rediscover the beauty and the power of this spirit of repetition about which Suzuki writes. And I actually learned an important message myself about the importance of repetition in a life of spiritual practice, in a spiritual life, 
When I read Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind from cover to cover each year for eight years running back in the 70s and 80s. And every time I read it, including the eighth and last time, I would come across numerous passages that seemed so new and so fresh that I couldn't really believe that I'd actually already read them before. But there they were in black and white in those same pages I'd read many times already. You know, it can be a little bit of a challenge gauging a spiritual talk or giving instructions to a group like this where there are a lot of people who are on their first retreat, and yet there's some who are really quite experienced. So as I'm speaking tonight um, and in the talks and the teachings to come, if a topic is already familiar to you, I hope that you can hear it in the spirit of Spirit that's, that Suzuki Roshi points to, that importance of repetition on the spiritual path. And that if you cultivate this capacity to hear the same topic, the same instructions, each time with fresh ears, that you may be surprised to find a new angle or a new nuance that you hadn't quite noticed before or hadn't yet connected with in your own experience. On the other hand, if you hear something that sounds too challenging or that you can't quite relate to in your own experience just yet, just note that and stick with what does seem relevant to you. If you continue with this practice, no doubt that particular teaching is going to roll back around. And at some point, you may find that it makes more sense. So in a way, this is the first thought also on this second topic for tonight, which is that of effort. Our effort in this practice of mindfulness involves an openness to repetition. It means just being willing to sit down again to work at cultivating mindfulness sitting after sitting. It means just disciplining ourselves to gently let go of thoughts as soon as we notice that our mind has wandered and to return mindfully to the breath over and over again. As human beings, our mind are, minds are quite naturally, they quite naturally have this habit of sometimes getting lost in thought. What we might call spacing out or getting seduced by thought. As an example of the first, um, we've probably all had the experience of driving somewhere, say in my case from Petaluma where I live up to Ukiah, and realizing upon arrival that you really don't remember hardly anything of the journey. And yet at the same time, there's only a vague recollection of what you're even thinking about. I think of that as spacing out. On the other hand, we've also probably had the experience of thinking about something over an extended period of time. It might be something that you're anxious about or planning about some future event where we were really quite aware of what we were thinking about. But the storyline of the thought was so compelling that we really lost touch with our present physical surroundings or even our own bodily experience for a bit. 
I think of that kind of experience as being seduced by the content or the storyline of the thought. Human nature being what it is, I'm guessing that perhaps you've experienced both of these versions of wandering mind over the time that you've been here in the past few days. And perhaps for some of you, these episodes have even accelerated over the past day or so into this second evening of the retreat. So it's these common tendencies of mind that necessitate much of the repetition that's required in our mindfulness practice. Often this penchant of mind towards increasingly wandering at this stage in the retreat is related to one of the hindrances that Richard spoke about the other night, the hindrance of boredom. Boredom is kind of an odd phenomenon. Usually we think that if we're bored, it's because what we're paying attention to isn't very interesting. But I'd like to suggest to you that that isn't necessarily the case. One of my first teachers, Joseph Goldstein, he liked to quote the German psychotherapist and founder of the Gestalt therapy um, tradition, Fritz Perls. And Perls said, boredom is lack of interest. And Joseph would go on to say that what Pearls meant is that boredom arises because of the quality of our attention. So my intent in choosing this topic of effort tonight is to suggest some ways that you can improve the quality of your mindful attention. So as I continue talking about the role of effort this evening, in relationship to wandering mind and other challenges that we face as we practice, just for the ease of discussion, I will be using mindfulness of breathing as the practice that I'll be talking about. But actually, the kinds of effort that I'll be describing, including this quality of the spirit of repetition, apply equally well to mindfulness objects such as sounds, bodily sensations, flavors, smells. This particular effort of repetition of returning again and again to our chosen focus of mindful attention has several parts. First, there is the effort to let go of the thought. Or perhaps it's an itch in your shoulder, or maybe it's a sound that you've heard that's intriguing and pulled your mind away from the breath or whatever it is that has distracted the mind away from its intended focus on the breath, the first effort is to let go of whatever it is that has distracted us. And usually when we think about making effort, we think about an act actively doing something, like, for example, clenching your fist. But the effort to let go is actually almost the opposite of that fist-clinching kind of effort. Letting go is more like relaxing or unclenching your fist. When our fist is clenched, it takes some effort to relax it. First, there's an intention in the mind, a decision to relax, and then there's the effort of actually relaxing the muscles in the hand. When we let go of, for example, a thought that has distracted us, it's quite similar. In fact, if you really look carefully in those moments in your practice when you're actually letting go of a thought 
that has distracted you, you might notice that in those moments, there's a subtle relaxation of the body. But sometimes, we might make a mistake in our effort at this moment in our practice when we first come to notice that the mind has wandered, especially during those difficult periods of our practice when the mind seems to be wandering a lot, when we seem to be easily distracted. When we realize that our mind has been lost in thought, we may feel annoyed with ourselves, and instead of just simply letting go, we might try to forcefully throw the thought out of our mind. And this kind of effort is a little bit more like clenching the fist tightly again. It creates tension in the body, and it uses up a lot of energy. And if we practice this way for very long, it's rather tiring. And our practice can become quite difficult. The relaxation that is the foundation of this quality of samadhi that we'll be talking about later, this quality of steadiness of mind, which gets developed along with our mindfulness practice, has a difficult time growing if we're not relaxed. So watch carefully at this point in your practice, and each time you notice that you've been lost in thought, gently let go of the thought, just as you might relax your cleansed fist. So the second part of the effort, when we notice that our attention has strayed, is to return to our our attention to the breath, to our object, whatever object we're working with. In this case, I'm going to talk about the breath. And if letting go of the thought is like unclenching the the fist, then returning to the breath is like closing the hand again, but this time without clenching. And once again, it's easy to try too hard. It's easy to tighten the mind too strongly to the breath. And again, this only creates tension making it more difficult for the steadiness of mind that we need to develop along with mindfulness to really mature. The return of the mind to the breath works best when it's gentle, yet resolute. And I remember my own first experience with mindfulness when I was a senior in college. As a religion major, I was really interested in um, this new literature that was being published, it was 1970. And there was a lot of new literature from Westerners who had gone to the East and had studied and practiced Eastern religions and then were coming back to the United States and writing about it. And it was the fall of 1970 and there was a new book coming out by Ram Dass titled titled Be Here Now. Some of you might be familiar with it. And it had just arrived at the bookstore of my college, so I rushed down to get a copy. And one section of this book was titled Cookbook for a Sacred Life. It was kind of a buffet, if you will, of a variety of different kinds of spiritual practices that you might want to try out. And I was feeling ready to try one out, so I read through that section, looking for a practice that might be suitable for me. Mindfulness practice was the one that seemed the best fit. As I remember, Ram Dass's instructions were really quite simple, quite basic. He said, you simply focus your attention on what is happening right here, right now. And then when your mind wanders, as soon as you notice, you just bring your attention back to the present moment. And this just sounded great. It sounded very pragmatic, 
No dogma involved, nothing esoteric. The perfect practice for a young man who had grown up in a modern Protestant home where reason trumped all other forms of knowledge. <laughs> and with a physician for a father who described Jesus as the greatest psychologist that ever lived. So I immediately began my practice. And I noticed, as I got up from my reading, I mindfully noticed standing up, starting to walk, and I began the rest of my day. And as you might imagine, it wasn't long before my mind wandered off. And I was lost in thought. Two weeks later, I suddenly remembered, oh yeah, I was going to do that mindfulness practice. <laughs> but instead of simply beginning again, refocusing my attention on the present moment, it occurred to me that maybe this practice wasn't the right one for me after all. It's another one of the hindrances that Richard talked about the other night, doubt. And the, one of the ways that we talk about doubt in the Buddhist tradition is that it pulls the plug on effort. And that's what happened to me. I felt discouraged. I lacked resolve. And I gave up. I didn't have the spirit of repetition. I hadn't yet understood that at this point in the practice, where we wake up from having been lost in thought, that it really doesn't matter how long you were lost in thought. That the gap in mindfulness could be any gap, doesn't really matter. That the only thing that matters is the willingness and the resolve to begin again. Fortunately for me, I stumbled upon this practice again um, a few years later, and this time with Joseph Goldstein at Naropa Institute. And with the help of a wonderful teacher, my second attempt at mindfulness proved to be both more persistent and more fruitful. So this then is an important aspect of our effort in practice. We need the willingness and the resolve. And as Suzuki Roshi says, the spirit of repetition if our practice is to develop. So in our mindfulness practice, our mind having wandered and having now returned to the breath, we might think that, okay, I've done my part. I'm just going to let the mind stay with the breath. But if you practice like this, it probably won't be long before your mind wanders off again. Having returned to the breath after an episode of wandering mind, after gently taking up mindfulness of breathing yet again, the effort that we need at this point is the effort to gently hold the mind to the breath. While I was a monk in Thailand, I had the good fortune not only to study with Ajahn Buddhadasa, but also with his closest disciple, Ajahn Po. Ajahn Buddhadasa uh, was a university-educated monk, a scholar and a writer who was famous in Thailand, both for his Dharma talks, which were broadcast on the radio throughout the whole country, but also for these debates that he would have with this other um, intellectual of his time, Kukrit Pramod. Well, on the other hand, Ajahn Po was a villager. He'd grown up on Gosamui a short ways from Watswan Mok, where Ajahn Buddha Dasa had his monastery. And Ajahn Po had a very simple way of describing this particular aspect of effort, of holding the mind to the breath. He said that it's like enfolding a small bird in your hand. If you hold it too tight, 
you're going to crush the bird to death. But if you hold it too loose, the bird's going to fly away. So having returned to the breath, we continue our effort by holding our mind gently to those bodily sensations that let us know that breathing is happening. And I want to talk about one other little aspect of mindful breathing. It's actually, in some ways, sort of particular to mindful breathing that I think is actually important and could help you to refine your practice just a little bit. And that is that as you're paying attention to the in-breath and the out-breath, you might have noticed that oftentimes there's a gap between the end of the out-breath and the beginning of the next in-breath. And that's a time where the mind can easily wander because there's not a clear sensation of breathing going on. So what you can do in those moments, wherever you're paying attention to the breath, whether it's in the abdomen, or at the nostrils, or at the chest, even when the breath is still between that out-breath and the next in-breath, there are still physical sensations in that part of the body. And so if you can stay in touch with the physical sensations that are happening in that part of the body, even though they're not the sensations that are letting you know that breathing is happening, they're just physical sensations. Then when the next in-breath starts, you'll be right there for it. So just a little trick that you can try, see how it works for you. So during those times when the mind is really resting with the breath, we have the opportunity to practice another important kind of effort. And this is the effort to experience the breath with more clarity. Or we could say to investigate our experience of breathing. We make the effort to see as clearly as we can just how the breath is happening right now. Is this breath a short one or a long one, a shallow one or a deep one? Is there a gap between the breath this breath and the next, or does one follow immediately after the other? We can look carefully to catch the very first moment of a new in-breath, and then follow its trail of sensations until the very last moment, and catch the very first moment of the next out-breath. And then we can follow its trail of sensations until it too comes to its end. With mindfulness of the breath practice in this precise manner, we can begin to appreciate the impermanent nature of each individual breath. We can see directly in our own present moment awareness how each breath blossoms into our experience, persists for a time, experiences a dynamic flow of bodily sensations, and then completely vanishes never to return again. Looking more closely, we may notice that the bodily sensations that communicate to us that breathing is happening, that these sensations themselves are constantly changing. We may even see each momentary sensation within the breath arise and pass away, arising and passing away moment after moment. And in this way, we begin to catch deep glimpses of what in the Buddhist tradition is called in the Pali language, anicca, 
which is usually translated into English as impermanence, one of the central themes of the Buddha's teaching. And with this enhanced quality of attention, the breath itself becomes more interesting. There are many other ways that we can investigate mindfully. While eating, for example, we can pay attention more carefully to the way that the texture of the food is changing as we're moment to moment grinding it up with our teeth. Or we might inquire into the experience of taste. Does a bite of food taste the same at the beginning as it does at the end? And this subject of investigation is really a vast one. And impermanence is just one of the many topics that we can explore in our own direct experience. We could easily talk about the different ways that we can investigate in our mindfulness practice for many hours. But it's especially important for each of us to find our own ways to investigate and to find those aspects of our experience that personally we feel compelled to understand more deeply. So I encourage you to be experimental with this aspect of effort of investigation. But as you do, be sure to stay with direct experience. As best as you can, resist the temptation to think too much about the insights that come your way. That there's a tendency to reflect on what you're seeing. And it can be quite compelling, these new insights that may may begin to arise, especially as they get more and more interesting as the practice progresses. You know, as we travel this path of mindfulness, we're like explorers in an unexplored land. Just like Lewis and Clark on their expedition in the early 1800s from the East Coast all the way to the Pacific, with each step of our journey, we enter new territory. Territory never before experienced by us. If we really pay attention, there's this delightful freshness to each new moment of life that Leslie has been talking a bit about um, in some of her talks. And one of Leslie and my teachers, Peter Barth, he likes to call attention to this quality of freshness. And in doing so, he's not just pointing out that each unfolding moment of our lives is unique and pristine, but he's also encouraging us to meet each moment with an openness to new possibilities as well. To be freshly mindful of each new breath, of each new experience, This is the spirit of this effort of investigation. Suzuki Roshi puts it this way. In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities, but in the expert's, there are few. If we make this effort to investigate with the mind of a beginner, there's really so much to discover about this experience of being human. And our insight and understanding will grow and deepen sometimes in surprising ways. And I have a, a story that uh, is one of my favorite and all the stories that I've heard over the years of listening to teachings and reading books about Buddhism. 
And it's a story that was often told by Joseph Goldstein. And it sort of relates to this topic. So I'm going to tell it because I just like telling it. And it's a story about, it takes place in Russia, maybe in the late 1800s. And it's a story about a rabbi who lived in a small Russian town. And this rabbi, um, every morning he would get up, have breakfast, and then he'd walk across the town square to the synagogue, which was on the other, other side of the town square, where he would tend to his um, congregation and also spend time studying the holy books. And so this one particular morning, he got up and he had his breakfast, and he started out walking across the, this town square. And it just so turned out that that morning, the town constable kind of got up on the wrong side of the bed. And I don't know if he had a fight with his wife the night before or ate something that disagreed with him. I don't know, but he was in a foul mood. And he saw the rabbi walking across the town square, so he walked over to the rabbi, kind of like wanted to pick a fight or something. He said, Rabbi, where are you going? And the rabbi, who was quite diminutive, looked up to this huge town constable and he said, I don't know. <laughs> and the town constable says, what do you mean you don't know? Every year for the last 20 years, you get up in the morning, you walk, have your breakfast, and you walk across the town square. How dare you tell me you don't know? I'll teach you to play around with the town constable. And he grabbed him by the nape of the neck and he marched him off to the town jail. And just as the constable was pushing the rabbi through the door to the cell, the rabbi looked up to him and said, you see, I really didn't know. <laughs> so we began this evening by reflecting a bit on the importance of repetition in our practice. And now we're looking into the the newness of each unfolding experience, as well as the freshness that we need to bring to our experience of it. And I don't know about you, but for me, there's a kind of a interesting paradox here. The repetition of returning again and again to this present moment, yet each time looking freshly to see what this unique moment brings, seeing again and again as if with new eyes never quite sure what's going to happen next. And there's another element of paradox when it comes to this topic of effort as well. The Buddha often spoke of the importance of chanda, or zeal, a kind of strong-willed, keep-your-nose-to-the-grindstone intentionality in our practice. And often in the suttas, you can feel the Buddha's in a strong teaching style where he, he has this kind of no-nonsense kind of urgency that there's no time to waste in the spiritual practice, in the, spiritual, in the life of a spiritual practitioner. On the other hand, the Buddha preached the importance of the virtue of patience. This is called kanti in, in Pali. And it was one of the ten paramis, or the qualities that the Buddha described as being perfected by a Buddha. So on the one hand, there's chanda, this zeal. And on the other hand, there's kanti, there's patience. And there's this aphorism that I like that captures the apparent tension between these two, between chanda and kanti, in a very pithy way. 
a saying that I have found useful in my own practice over the years. And I first heard this quote so long ago that I've forgotten where it comes from. Maybe some of you have heard it and can remind me of its source. Um, so I can't really attribute it tonight, but I want to share it with you. And it goes like this. Hasten slowly and you will soon arrive. So in our practice, we need to find a balance between chanda or zeal on the one hand and kanti or patience on the other. And we could also describe finding this balance between urgency and patience in terms of this overarching theme in the Buddhist teachings, that of the middle way between extremes. There's a lovely story in the suttas that illustrates this middle way with regard to yet another aspect of this topic of effort in our practice, that of virya in Pali, which translates into English variously as diligence, persistence, perseverance, or sometimes simply as energy. And I'd like to tell the story of that sutta, drawing on and at times quoting from the English translation by Ajahn Tanisaro, who is a monk down at Metta Forest Monastery, which is near San Diego. And the sutta starts out with this monk named Sona. The sutta, by the way, suttas, by the way, if you don't know that word, those are the Buddhist scriptures, one, one part of the Buddhist scriptures. The Buddhist scriptures are divided into three different, what they call, baskets. And one of the baskets is the suttas, which are the spoken word of the Buddha. So the sutta starts out with this monk named Sona, who was meditating in seclusion at a place called Cool Wood. And he's reflecting to himself that even though he was one of those monks that was really diligent, was really good and persistent in his practice with this, this quality of virya, nonetheless, he hadn't yet found his release from his own suffering. He hadn't yet found his own enlightenment. And he got to thinking, so, you know, my family's really got a lot of money. Um, so it would be possible to actually enjoy wealth, and then I could give money to the monks and make merit. What if I were to disrobe, leave the monks' training behind, and return to the lay life to enjoy wealth and to make merit? And it said that, the Buddha, who at that time was staying some distance away at a place called Vulture's Peak, by virtue of his psychic powers, he knew Sona's train of thought. And according to the suttas, just as a strong man might stretch out his bent arm, the Buddha disappeared from Vulture Peak and appeared in cool wood in front of Venerable Sona. And he sat down next to him. And he said to Sona something like, now Sona, weren't you just thinking? And then he went on to like repeat to Sona verbatim the thought that Sona was having about leaving the monastic line. Yes, Lord, said Sona, I imagine rather sheepishly. And the Buddha then asked Sona if before ordaining, while he was still a layman, if he had played the veena, which is this traditional Indian stringed instrument, something like a sitar, a small sitar. Yes, Lord, Sona again replied, at which point the following conversation ensued. And what do you think, Sona? When the strings of your vena were too loose, was your vena 
in tune and playable? No, Lord. When the strings of your vena were too tight, was your vena in tune and playable? No, Lord. When the strings of your vena were tuned just right, was your vena in tune and playable? Yes, Lord. In the same way, Sona, over-aroused persistence leads to restlessness. Again, one of the hindrances that Richard spoke of. Overly slack persistence, on the other hand, leads to laziness. Yet another of the hindrances. Thus, you should determine the right pitch for your perseverance, and there resume your practice. Yes, Lord, Sona answered. And having thus advised Sona, it said that as a strong man might bend his outstretched arm, the Buddha disappeared from Coolwood and reappeared on Vulture Peak. For his part, Venerable Sona took the Buddha's teaching to heart. And it said that he was able to determine the right pitch for his persistence, and he continued his practice. And as the story goes, he soon attained the supreme goal of the holy life. And the knowledge arose in him, in his mind thus, and I quote from the suttas, birth is ended, the holy life fulfilled, the task done, there is nothing further for the sake of this world. And this is the story of how Venerable Sona became fully enlightened, became one of what we call the Arhats, a being who has conquered all his defilements and as, no, as, a real, as a result has vanquished suffering in his own life. So as you continue your practice on this um, night of the second day of the retreat, you might ask yourself, how well tuned are the strings of your vena? You might find yourself thinking, I've been working hard for the last few days and it's really tough right now. I think I'll just give myself a little break and skip this next sitting. Or maybe you're thinking, I think I'll indulge myself and really enjoy this delicious fantasy that's just come my way. And I'll start over again tomorrow. Well, been there, done that. And based on my own experience, I'd say that chances are your strings might be a little too loose. On the other hand, you might be struggling because your mind just won't stop wandering. And the inner critic is having a field day. What's wrong with you? It's so simple. Can't you just keep with your, stay with the breath? Can't you just keep your mindfulness going? Or perhaps you're just gritting your teeth and pushing through. Been there, done those as well. If that's you, then based on my own experience, I say that the chances are your strings are a bit too tight. So I just want to say briefly about this story of Sona and the Buddha, which has these sort of supernatural psychic dimensions to it. But you know, it doesn't really matter so much whether you take the story literally or whether you see it as mythical. The main point is on getting the tightness of your strings right. One of my favorite teachings from the 
Thai monastic forest tradition also illustrates this teaching of the middle way, of finding the middle way between two extremes as a strategy for meeting those apparent paradoxical aspects of effort, as well as many other similar enigmas that we encounter on the spiritual path in general. And this teaching comes from um, one of the main Theravadan Buddhist lineages that is held at Spirit Rock, and the specific monastic lineage that's being carried forth by the monks at Abhayagiri Monastery in Ukiah, just north of here. And as a holder of this, um, as a lay holder of this teaching lineage, it also has a special place in my heart because my wife, Muk, who is Thai, grew up in northeastern Thailand. And when she was a child, she often went with her family to offer food to the monks at the monastery, Wat Nambapong, which was and is still today the primary seat of this lineage. And for my generation of practitioners, the revered head of this lineage was a simple Thai monk named Ajahn Chah. Ajahn Chah was sometimes asked about his role as a spiritual teacher. And he replied that for him, being a spiritual teacher was not particularly complicated. He said that you know, he'd been walking this path for many, many years in his life. And he knew it really well because he's traversed the territory back and forth so many times. And he says, sometimes while I'm walking this path, I look up ahead and I see someone who's about to fall off the path to the left. So I say, hey, you, go right. <laughs> and then a little bit later, I'm walking down the same path, and I see someone's about to fall into the ditch on the right. And so I say, hey, you, go left. <laughs> All my teaching, he said, is just like this. Over and over again, finding the middle path. This is our effort, and this is our practice. So as you're practicing this evening, what do you need to do to bring yourself back to the middle? Do you need to go right? Do you need to go left? So we've looked at it a bit at some of the ways of applying effort that cultivate the capacity to remain steadily focused on our chosen object of experience. And we've touched briefly on the importance of using that steadiness as a foundation for another kind of effort, the investigation of the Dhamma. This Pali word that means something like the truth with a capital T. By directing our attention with this concentrated steadiness of mindfulness to the investigation of the Dhamma, I tend to use the word Dhamma, but Dharma is how it's also uh, pronounced. Dharma comes from Sanskrit, Dhamma from Pali. We begin to explore this truth with a capital T, this truth about our human lives, this truth that the Buddha recognized many centuries ago, this truth about the way things are happening. So having discussed now the importance of the effort to carefully inspect the nature of our of our human experience and our mindfulness practice. I think it behooves us to reflect a little bit on this truth itself, this Dhamma that we are endeavoring to uncover through our practice. So this then is the third topic for tonight. You know, the truth that the Buddha encountered some 2,600 years ago is difficult to describe directly with words. 
So in the Buddhist tradition, sometimes we point towards particular experiential insights that help us to keep our practice focused in the right direction, to have the right aim in our practice, so to speak. In this realm of truth that the Buddha referred to as the Dhamma is like a jewel with many facets. And it has many insightful doorways that can lead us into its inner sanctum. For example, the actuality of the causes of suffering in a human life. Impermanence. The absence of a persisting separate self in our human experience. Emptiness. Dependent origination. The interdependence, interconnectedness, and interpenetration of knowing subject and known object. Luminosity or radiance. Insubstantiality. Just to name some of the more profound of the experiential insights that are possible entryways for us as we practice mindfulness honed with this finely tuned effort. And all of these doors, doorways or thresholds into the underlying truth about our lives, all of these kinds of insight that are available to us through our practice share certain qualities in common. And I remember from my time as a monk in Thailand that there was a particular chant that pointed towards the Dhamma in this way, that pointed towards the qualities of the truth that are shared by these various windows into our true nature. And this brief chant is called Recollection of the Dhamma. And for me, it was one of the most moving chants that I learned as a monk. And it still touches me deeply today. In Pali language, the language in which it was traditionally chanted in Thailand, it goes like this. Svakato Bhagavata Dhammo Sanditiko akaliko ehipasiko opanaiko pachitam vedita buinyuhiti. And this first line, Svakato Bhagavata Dhammo, in English would read something like, The Dhamma, the truth, is well expounded by the Blessed One. And the words of the next two lines then depict the specific qualities that the Buddha in his excellent exposition attributed to the truth or the Dhamma. So the second line, sanditiko, akaliko, ehipasiko, offers three such qualities. Sanditiko. So this characteristic of the Dhamma reminds us that the truth is to be seen, in fact, can only be seen here and now. Actually, everything that happens to us in our lives happens here and now. Even our memories about the past, our plans and fantasies about the future, even these are just thoughts happening in the present moment. But usually, when such thoughts come, we become so infatuated with the story that they're telling that we can't see clearly. We don't recognize that this memory, this fantasy, is just another thought happening in the present moment. Over and over again, our thoughts take us away from the here and now. Our mindfulness practice 
But the kind of effort we've been talking about tonight is the solution for this difficulty that we face. Our thoughts are very powerful, and we need some way to train ourselves to return over and over again to be just here, to be just now. Practicing anapanasati, or mindfulness of the breath, trains our mind in just this way. Over and over again, we simply return to the breath. The very breath that is happening right here, right now. As our minds learn to stay more easily focused on the breath, we can expand our practice to include other aspects of our present moment experience. Bodily sensations, sounds, sights, odors, flavors, our emotions, and eventually even noticing that our thoughts are actually occurring here and now. Returning over and over again to our present situation, we see more and more clearly in each experience the truth, the Dhamma, which can only be seen here and now. Gradually, our lives can become one continuous practice of returning to the present, seeing clearly here and now, again and again. Sanditiko. Akaliko. The Dhamma, which is to be seen now and here, is beyond time. It's not limited to a particular time in history. The Buddha never rode in a car or a bus or a train or flew in an airplane. He never watched TV or listened to the radio or used a computer or a cell phone, let alone an Apple Watch to log into the internet or Facebook. The world today is very different in many ways from the world that he lived in some 26 centuries ago. Yet the truth that he found, that he found for himself, is still here for us to see for ourselves. You know, the Buddha didn't create the Dhamma. It wasn't some new idea or theory of his. This natural law, the Dhamma, was there before the Buddha. In fact, was always there. Siddhartha Gautama, a wandering ascetic who had formerly been the crown prince of a small kingdom in northern India, simply discovered this truth, this natural law that we call the Dhamma, and thus became the Buddha, which means the awakened one, the one who has awakened from the sleep of ignorance and seen the truth. When Siddhartha Gautama woke up to the truth 2,600 years ago, the natural law he discovered included the understanding of how to help others wake up to the truth for themselves. So the Buddha began teaching others how to discover the truth. Thus, we also have this meaning of this term Dhamma as the teachings of the Buddha. And just as the natural law discovered by the Buddha is timeless, akaliko, is still here for us to discover for ourselves, the path of practice taught by the Buddha that leads to this discovery is just as relevant for us today as it was for his disciples in the 6th century BC. When their venerable Sariputra, who was the Buddha's disciple foremost in wisdom, practiced Anapanasati, his breath coming in and going out 
was just like our own in-breath and out-breath. The sensations on the bottom of the feet of Mahamogalana, who is the Buddha's disciple foremost in psychic powers, were just like those we feel when we do our walking meditation. And if we follow the Buddha's advice and practice sincerely, we too can awaken to this same truth that the Buddha discovered as he sat under the Bodhi tree some 2,600 years ago. And as we begin to understand the truth, we will know that it has always been here with us, every moment of our lives, even though we did not see it. And we will know that there will never be a moment apart from this truth. The Dhamma is beyond time, timeless, akaliko. Ehipasiko, this timeless Dhamma is always waiting for us with open arms. Each moment, it shows itself to us, inviting us to come and see for ourselves. Over and over again, the Dhamma calls out to us. It might be the song of a bird, or the colors of a sunset, or the aroma of breakfast cooking. Wake up, the Dhamma calls. Look and see the truth right now. Or we may experience some suffering in our lives. The feeling of our unhappiness is just the Dhamma speaking to us once again. Look to see why you suffer, the Dhamma is saying. Discover the truth about the cause of suffering right now. You know, this natural law, the Dhamma, creates no barriers to prevent us from seeing it. The walls that block the Dhamma from our view are within each one of us. We create them day by day, moment by moment, and through the practice of mindfulness, we can come to recognize these barriers which block the Dhamma from our view. We can learn how we create them and how to see through them. And in this way, we can remove the blindness from our eyes and accept the Dhamma's invitation to see the truth. The Dhamma's always right here, right now, waiting for us with open arms, inviting us into its embrace. Ehipasiko. The third line of this chant, Opanayako Pachitam Veditabu, continues this exposition of the Dharma's inherent qualities. Opanayiko. The Dhamma invites us to see the truth, to see this natural law in ourselves, in our own direct experience. The Dhamma as the natural law is not something apart from our experience. It cannot be found in a book somewhere or in the words or example of some teacher or saint, although these may be quite useful in helping to guide and encourage us in our search for the truth. This is a pretty important point, so I'd like to just give a simple example. Let's say that you'd never tasted coffee before. So you might ask, well, what does coffee taste like anyway? And I might say, well, you know, it's got a strong flavor. Um, it's rather bitter by itself, kind of like 
tea or chocolate without any sugar added. But you know, if you put sugar in, it tastes really good. And if you add cream, it tastes even better. And I could go on describing the flavor of, of coffee for an hour or more. And you might get some idea of what coffee tastes like. But you wouldn't know the taste of coffee itself. However, if instead of telling you about coffee's flavor, I prepared a cup and gave it to you, then you could drink it. And as the first sip of coffee crossed your tongue, your question about the taste of coffee would be answered as you directly experience the flavor of coffee for yourself with your own body, with your own mind, for the first time. And in just the same way, we have to look to find the Dhamma right here in this body, in this mind. One of my earliest Dharma teachers, Christopher Titmus, is an English man, was fond of saying that the truth, the Dhamma, is closer to us than the blood in our veins. So when we begin to understand the Dhamma directly and not through books and teachers, we see that the Dhamma is already within us. It's not separate from our bodies, our minds, from our experience. Actually, our bodies, our minds, are themselves just this natural law, the Dhamma, manifesting itself. Finding the Dhamma in our own experience, Opanayiko. So each of us must come to our own knowledge and vision of this Dhamma, which is so intimately related to us. Each of us must actually drink the cup of coffee for ourselves. There's no way someone else can give us this understanding. Joseph Goldstein likes to say, the Buddha's enlightenment solved his problem. It didn't solve ours. <laughs> each of us must solve our own problem the problem of suffering, the problem of not being able to find any lasting satisfaction, any secure happiness in this life. And although the Buddha couldn't solve our problem for us, he did leave behind us very good advice. And if we follow this advice, we can come to see the Dhamma for ourselves. The most important aspect of the Buddha's advice for us is his teaching of mindfulness. When we practice mindfulness, we accept the Dhamma's invitation to come and see. To see this truth about the way things are happening. This natural law, which is beyond the changing nature of time. By training our minds to see more clearly here and now. By practicing in this way, sincerely and with effort and perseverance, we can discover the Dhamma within our own lived experience and solve our problem, the problem of discontentment in a human life, by seeing the Dhamma clearly, each of us for ourselves. Pachitam Viditabhu Vinyahiti. So as we refine our effort in our practice, as we sharpen our ability to see more precisely how our life is happening moment to moment, these qualities of the Dhamma give us a reference point. 
And we can use this reference, these reference points to measure the insights that we encounter. And when in the course of our practice, we find that we are accepting the Dhamma's invitation to see how things are happening right now. And in our direct experience, in our own direct experience, and for ourselves. And when the insights we encounter resonate with the realization that this is how things have always been, and that the world will continue to happen in just this way, then we can rest assured that we're on the right track. So in closing, I'd just like to suggest to you that for us as human beings, practicing the Dhamma is the most beneficial thing we can do, both for ourselves and for others. You know, you have the opportunity to practice mindfulness together in this way, and it's really a very unusual, very special opportunity. In this world of something like seven to eight billion people, very few have the opportunity to do what we have the opportunity to do here these six days. Very few. So we're really fortunate. So please use this opportunity wisely. Really try to see clearly. See for yourself, directly in your own experience, the way things are happening right now. See the Dhamma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.